Anyway, it is a joy to be here with you all this, this, uh, this evening. Um, let's, uh, let's read our passage. So we're, found, we're, um, we're, we're back in 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 4 to 10. And uh, I'll read that passage for us, and then we'll get started. Let's uh, see what the Word of God says. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. The Apostle John writes this. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to to you for your word. We're grateful for how it instructs us, for how it teaches us more about who you are and how it challenges us and pushes us to live righteously for your sake. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us this evening to to hear what your word has to say. We know that for some of these truths, there are similar truths. There are truths that we've heard before. And uh, it can be easy for us to... uh, Think that we've, we've known it, uh, or that we know it, and uh, that we don't need to hear it again. I know that uh, even for some, it might be challenging to hear uh, some of these words, um, maybe not because of tiredness, but just because of the content of the words itself. And so, Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself this evening, help us to be mindful of what your word says, so that we might respond to it rightly. May you be glorified and honored in this time. It's your sons and we pray. Amen. Words matter. You know this. I, I don't need to appeal to any, uh, to any news source, research article, or even ask, have you ask your neighbor what their experiences have been to back up my claim. Because we all know that words have meaning. We've all been misunderstood at some point in our lives. We have all experienced the consequences of careless words. The words we choose, the context we say them in, the attitude with which we say them, all have meaning and consequence. Normally, when we think about the importance of our words, we only think about our words in terms of how we use them socially. And while it does matter how we use our words in a social setting, they also matter in our own personal lives. How do we describe ourselves? How do we describe our life situation? Do we see sin as God sees it, or do we look at it differently? When the Apostle John wrote this letter to his children of the faith, his purpose, according to 1 John 5.13, is to help them see that they have eternal life. And as we've seen over the past couple weeks, and especially this evening, John accomplishes this by painting a picture of what defines a Christian. Those who are the children of God will be just like Jesus, and they will all demonstrate their familial relationship to him through their practice of righteousness. Now, we have a tendency to minimize sin through the words that we use to describe our sin. Sometimes we forget that we are sinning in the first place. For instance, are we prone to complain or complaining? I know that I am. And yet, remember what happened to the Israelites when they complained after they, uh, after they escaped Egypt? What happened? God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They were only miles away from their destination, miles away from the promised land. And yet, because of their sin, because of their ungratefulness, God disciplined them and had them wander through the wilderness for 40 years. Right? That's what sin is. They can say, oh, I'm just complaining because my feet hurt. 
They could say, I'm complaining because I'm hungry. And even though it was legitimate, it was still sin. Right? So that's why God disciplined them. God won't necessarily do the same thing to us, right? So praise God, we're not going to be wandering around our homes for 40 years just hoping and wishing to get inside. But the point is, we, may, we are really good at making excuses for our sin. Right? Instead, of, uh, instead of making excuses or justifying our sins, we need to take our sins seriously. We need to see them as God sees them. Just because Jesus sympathizes with us just because he forgives us when we confess our sin does not mean that we can have a cavalier attitude when it comes to sin. So in our text this evening, we're going to look at two reasons why believers must treat sin seriously in their lives. Two reasons why believers must treat sin seriously in our lives. The first reason why believers must treat sin seriously in our lives is because sinning is rebellion against God. Sinning is rebellion against God. Now, last week, Stephen showed us how John wanted his readers to understand the great love that God has shown us as he has brought us into his family. This reality of being children of God is built off the end of 1 John 2, as John encourages his readers to abide in Christ so that when Christ appears, they might have confidence since those who are born of Christ are those who practice righteousness. In this week's passage, John returns from his short discussion on the wonder of being children of God, the wonder of experiencing God's love, to examine what it looks like to abide in Christ. Okay, so verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So in contrast to those who practice righteousness at the end of 1 John 2, John highlights those who practice sin by saying that everyone who sins practices lawlessness. Now, John is making a strong statement here to clearly demonstrate what righteousness looks like. By beginning his explanation with everyone, John makes it clear that the standard he sets forth applies to every single person in all of human history. There are no exceptions. Everyone who practices sin, no matter what race or social status they have, practices lawlessness. Even if you in your situation have experienced the worst of all humanity, if you practice sin, even if you've been hurt, it is still lawlessness. The verb practices is in the present tense, and it carries with it the idea of a continual practice of sin. Now, we're not talking about a one-time or occasional act of sin, but a lifestyle that willfully chooses to sin in a particular way frequently. So we're not talking about those who are saved and who struggle with their sin Occasionally, we're not talking about those who, uh, who have been entangled in their sin for a season. Instead, what John is talking about here, the people that John is addressing here, are those who are still enslaved in their sins, still enslaved by their sins. These are the people whose sins define who they are. Now, the word that John uses for sin, it's that common word that we know for sin. That word that signifies that the standard of holy perfection has been missed. John could have stopped here. He could have said something else. For instance, he could have said, everyone who practices sin is dead in their sins. Right? That would be theologically accurate. He could have stopped there and said that. Or he could have said, everyone who practices sin is in, the, is in need of forgiveness of their sins. That's also theologically accurate. But he doesn't say that. Right? John doesn't say that. Instead, he says that those who practice sin also practice lawlessness. Now, this word for lawlessness, it doesn't refer to being without law. There has always been a law in place. Instead, it refers to the act of rebellion against the law, acting as if there was no law. When you think about the Wild West and the lawlessness that was there, or lawless towns, it doesn't mean that there are no laws in those towns, but what it means is that the people who live in those towns act contrary to the law that's been established. 
Right? So that's why he has this idea of rebellion against the law. Now, because lawlessness is considered by God as an act of rebellion, since it rejects his moral law and chooses to act in a way that is opposite from what God approves, John makes it very clear to his readers that sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion. And lawlessness is sin. And that's an important point to consider as we read John's letter. Because if you remember, there were some people who had come under the influence of false teaching. And the false teaching claimed that sin was no longer a problem for Christians because sin is something that affects the physical body. But because we've been saved, our inner body is righteous, so everything that we do in our physical bodies is not sin anymore. And as a result, there were some Christians among John's readers who thought, hey, I can sin as much as I want to because all of my sin is outside of my body. Right? My, my spirit is, is, is holy, it's immaterial, so it's not affected by sin. So I can sin as much as I want. This is great. But John corrects them by saying that God considers all sin as lawlessness. You can call it a mistake if you want. It's still sin. It's still lawlessness. Christians can't excuse sin by saying that they are internally righteous so that any sin committed by them physically doesn't affect their spirit any longer. Nor can Christians ever say that God excuses our sin because they are all forgiven in Christ anyway. So continual sin in our lives is a mean to acquire more grace. Paul pushes back against that attitude in Romans 6, 1-2 when he asks, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Back in 1 John 2.1, John tells his readers that his aim in reminding them of the gospel is so they will not sin. And if they do sin, they have an advocate for them in Jesus who paid for sins. But still, the desired result from all who have believed is that they will not sin. Brothers and sisters, we may not have believed the false teaching of these uh, false teachers who are influencing the Christians John was writing to, but we can at times be guilty of not seeing all sin as rebellion against God. We can at times be guilty of forgetting that God doesn't evaluate our obedience solely based on our ability to avoid the big sins, but on how we flee and combat all sin. And that includes our inward attitudes and actions like pride, anger, anxiety, fear, rebellion, complaining, slandering. The list goes on and on. All of our sin is rebellion. All of our sin is rebellion. And to continue on in them, even if we think we're justified, even if we have been hurt and harmed by others, it's not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to God. And in order to prove the seriousness of sin even further, John continues in verses 5 to 6 of chapter 3. And he says, you know, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So John, he points back to the reason for Christ's coming to help Christians understand why the rebelliousness of sin is no longer tolerable in the life of a Christian. If we know confidently that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, became a man in submission to God the Father to take away sin for all who believe in him, then all who believe in him should sin no more. Right? That should be motivation enough for all of us to sin no longer. Right? Not only has the guilt of our, of our sin been legally removed from us, but our unity with and in the forever sinless and holy body of Jesus Christ means that we also are to be sinless as he is sinless. 
Peter, Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16. He says, we are to be holy in all, our, all of our behavior like the Holy One who saved us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that Christ died for all so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. If we belong to Christ, righteousness, not sin, is what we are to be known for because we represent the one who saved us from our sins. He emancipated us. He freed us from our sins. So why are we sticking our hands back in the handcuffs and locking the cuffs? We, because of the freedom given to us, proclaim the power of the gospel to save people from their sins when we choose righteousness over sin. It might be subtle. It might be small. You might think, how does my one small act of obedience My internal act of obedience proclaim the glory of the gospel. How does it do that? It does that because in our lives, when we choose to think differently, when we choose to act differently, it will show up over time. People will ask you, why is it that when everyone else is complaining, you don't? Why is it that when everyone else is angry, frustrated, uh, complaining, you don't? It'll show up in our character One of my favorite pastors um, that I trained under at the Master Seminary told us that we have to be careful about sin and cultivating sin in our lives because eventually carnality leaks, right? Our sinfulness, our fleshliness, it'll leak out. You might think that you're okay. You might think that you can hide your sin and that nobody else will ever see it, and that might be true, but you can be sure that God sees it. Or you can be sure that your sins will find you out eventually. You can be sure that when the pressure's on, that sinfulness, it will leak. People will see it. That's why we choose, even in the small things, righteousness. Now, verse 6 poses a potentially interesting problem for us because some people could interpret it as saying that no one who abides in Christ sins at all. You could interpret it that way. And from our own personal experience, this potential interpretation of this text, the absolute denial that someone who abides in Christ uh, no longer sins at all is disturbing. Because we've all sinned after we've repented of our sins and believed in Christ. Thankfully, John is not saying that we will never sin again. He's not saying that after you sin, you'll be perfect. Saying that Christians will never sin after salvation would actually contradict what other biblical authors have said regarding believers in sin and everything that John has established in chapters 1 and 2. For instance, John says in 1 John 1, 8, that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? So John's telling his believing audience, a believing audience, that they cannot say that they are without sin because that's a lie. Well, uh, we observed it, this a little earlier. First John 2, 1 to 2, summarizes chapter 1 as the motivation for Christians not to sin. If they do not, if, but if they do sin, forgiveness of sin is possible because of the one who died for not just one sin, not just two sins, or three, 491 sins, but all sins. Right? John would not write these things uh, in the past only to contradict himself here in chapter 3. He speaks, though, in absolute terms in order to catch our attention, in order to get us to think about the genuineness of our salvation. When he says that no one who abides in Christ sins, it should stop you in your tracks because you're thinking, wait, I abide in Christ. But I sin. Uh-oh. Am I in trouble? Am I still walking with the Lord? He says it in such strong terms to capture our attention, to get us to pause, to think, what is my salvation status? Do I actually love God with all my heart, mind, and soul? Do I do that? 
And that's why he does, says, says it in such strong language. If it were possible for Christians to be sinless after they believe in Christ, then much of the New Testament would not be needed since the apostles would have no need to correct poor theology and sinful lifestyles that result from that poor theology. If Christians were absolutely incapable of sinning after salvation, then the majority of the New Testament would not need to be written at all. What John helpfully lays out for us at the back end of chapter 2 and here in verse 6 is that abiding in Christ is a continual act. It's a continual act that Christians must choose to do in our lives. That's why he says it in the present tense. You are to continue to abide in Christ is the idea. It's not something that's just done once and continues on forever. It's unlike the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in that way. It's for this reason that the New Testament has passages that challenges believers to repent of their sins. Believers must continue to put off sin, to put off the old self, and to put on righteousness, to put on the new self, because there is remaining sin in our physical bodies. As we learned last week, when Christ appears, then we will see what God intends for us to look like as holy saints. It is then that we will be like Jesus completely and perfectly. But until then, until Christ's return, Jesus is, uh, John's previous command for us to abide in Christ remains active. That's why we are to continue to watch ourselves, to watch our life, to watch our doctrine, to continue to abide in Christ. We have to use this as a mindset. Right? We have to presently do this all the time. If you want to think about, this, about it this way, Christians who are walking closely with God will not sin as they are living their lives in worship to him. If we're properly focused and undistracted in our worship, we won't sin. Even in in our singing time, if your mind was undistracted and you were reminding yourselves of the truths that were found in those songs, it's really hard for us to sin, isn't it? Because you're singing about the glories of God. You're singing about salvation. You're singing about uh, just your own personal response to the great mercies that you've been shown. Right? It's really hard for you to sin if God is your focus. However, however, it's easy to sin even in worship if you become distracted. Right? If you become distracted. Um, when our hearts, like Martha are drawn away from God to remember the stress of our work week, that difficult coworker or friend that we're dealing with or whatever it might be that's bothering us. Isn't it easy when you remember those things to have your mind and your heart drawn away from God and onto your sin? It's easy. It's so easy. However, when we abide in Christ... When we abide in Christ, sin is no longer in the, in the forefront of our minds. Sin is no longer trying to rule over us. We're no longer slaves of unrighteousness, but we are at that point slaves of righteousness. So John continues to speak with this absolute language that we will not sin. We won't sin because No one who sins, he says, has seen him, seen Christ, or knows Jesus. Again, that's strong language. And what John's point uh, is here is that a habitual pattern of sin doesn't mean that someone's unsaved, but John recognizes that a commitment to a sinful lifestyle with no repentance likely means that the person who's committed to sin, does not see Christ, does not understand Christ, does not know Christ, doesn't have a real knowledge of Christ. They might intellectually recognize that Christ exists. They might intellectually recognize that Christ died for all sins, but they don't know him. 
Right? They don't know him personally. They don't know him savingly. While we don't, or the majority of us at least, don't fall in this category of, uh, actually, all of us have not seen Christ. Right? You can't say, oh, yes, I have, because I saw him in my kid's Bible. That's not Jesus, okay? Um, but uh, we, we all haven't seen Christ, right? Um, but we have seen him in the sense that we know what his character looks like as told in the scriptures. Right? We have seen him in that sense. And if we know who Christ is and what he taught, what he came here for, right, that's what John's pointing to, then that knowledge should lead us to follow after him. It should lead us to obedience. It should lead us to desire righteousness in all of our lives. And if we ultimately choose not to flee from sin, then John says we never really knew him. Sinning is rebellion against God. Those who love God will strive to continually abide in Christ. It's hard work. It's not easy. It's easier said than done. But we will strive if we love God truly to continue to abide in Christ. We won't see our sin as anything less than God sees it. Well, that should be enough of a reason for us to treat our sins seriously. There is a second reason Christians ought to take our sins seriously, and that is sinning is not characteristic of God's family. Sinning is not characteristic of God's family. Verse 7 to 8. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, John makes it clear to his readers that his concern for them is a pastoral concern. He's not writing to them simply to expose false teaching to his flock, but he's also writing to protect them from the false doctrine that might cause them to turn away from the one true God. And for this reason, he cautions them and he tells them to make sure that no one deceives them. Education or a secret calling from God is not what makes a person righteous. Just because they say, I've had a word from God, um, I've had a vision from God, doesn't mean that someone is righteous. Just because they went to a good Bible school or even seminary doesn't mean that someone is righteous. If a person claims that they are righteous and that they love God, their claim on its own is not sufficient to demonstrate that they truly love God and are faithfully following after him. What determines righteousness is not your fellowship group, it's not your church, but is a righteous lifestyle. That's what determines righteousness in a believer, is righteousness lived out in our lives. In James 2, James tells his audience that intellectual belief in God is not enough to prove saving faith. Saving faith is demonstrated through works. I've heard it put another way recently. Satan has perfect theology. Satan has perfect theology. He could correct us on proper theology. He can correct us on who God is. Everything that we have wrong in terms of, uh, of who God is as a person, he can correct us. He can point out our flaws there. He understands the sign gifts better than we do. He understands the end times better than we do. Everything about doctrine, Satan understands better than we do. Why? Because he was there in the beginning, right? After, or, be, well, not the beginning, beginning, but when, when God, after God created everything, he was one of the first beings made. He has perfect theology. He has had access to see who God is. He has perfect theology. However, that perfect theology does not lead him to worship God. Right? It does not lead him to worship God. He knows all these things. He has an accurate view of who God is, and yet he chose to rebel. He desired to be in the first place. He desired to be exalted above all of creation. And because of that, he fell. Satan, though he knows right doctrine, is not a right, righteous individual. He does not practice righteousness, but he practices rebellion. As a result, 
John points out that the one who practices sin is of the devil, a person who shares a relationship with the devil. Why are those who continually practice sin in their lives without restraint described as being of the devil? It's because the devil has sinned from the beginning. He is the originator of sin. Yes, Adam and Eve were the first humans who sinned, but as we just said, the devil was the first one who rebelled against God. And by sinning without restraint, those who practice sin in such a way prove themselves not to be followers of God, but followers of the devil. But what we see, what we see here in the latter part of verse 8 is that Jesus did not come to this earth to allow for sin to continue in the lives of those he rescued. No, the Son of God appeared for the purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus' death on the cross was not done so that those who believe in him could continue to live in their sins as if he did not deliver them from their sins. He came to free us from our sins so that we will not live in them again. If we were saved by Jesus in order to be free from slavery to sin, then we must be changed. We must look different from before we repented of our sin. And that difference is apparent as John continues on in verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So this is a similar statement to verse 6. John once again is making a very strong, absolute statement about a believer's state before God. However, this statement is different from verse 6 because it goes all the way back to a believer's incorporation into God's family, a believer's adoption into God's family when they believed in Jesus in the first place. Verse 6 talks about how no one who abides in Christ sinned. Verse 9, it draws an even stronger distinction by saying that no one who is born of God practices sin. It doesn't seem much different, but it is even stronger because it's talking about your family status, who you are fundamentally in your core, not just what you do. In our examination of verse 6, we noted that it is possible for a Christian to temporarily fail to abide in Christ, even if they are stuck in their sin for a period of time. However, as people abide in Christ, as they worship Jesus with undivided attention and affection, they will have victory and they will not sin. Here in verse 9, John goes a step further in this distinction he draws by sourcing his argument back to our spiritual heritage when he says no one who is born of God practices sin. Remember, John does not teach anywhere in his letter that Christians are perfect and incapable of sinning. He knows that Christians will still sin after they've been saved, after they've been born of God. So what is his point here when he says that no one who is born of God practices sin? Well, he's not trying to worry us, but he's trying to, again, grab our attention and show us what should be true of us because God's seed abides in us. Since Christians have been given a new nature by God as he makes their spirits spiritually alive in salvation, Christians forever will retain this new nature that he has given them. A new nature which cannot sin because it shares in his nature. In Ephesians 4, verse 24, Paul says that we are to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's what our nature is, right? This new nature that we have, it's a nature that's in the likeness of God. It's righteous. It's holy. Paul says, uh, shares a similar concept in Colossians 3, 9 to 10, when he says that believers are to act differently from their former manner of life since they have laid it aside with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created them. Paul's point. 
a point that John is bringing out in our passage tonight, is that the new self, the new nature that we have in salvation is one that, sh- that we share with God. It's a righteous nature that we have. The inner nature that loves God, that follows after God, the new man that we put on, that nature is sinless. But what we have when we do sin is the residual of our old life. But this new nature that we have, right, it's in the likeness of God. It consists of righteousness and holiness, and it has been given to us so that we will become more like Jesus each passing day. When we act according to this new nature that we've been given, what John says here in the second half of verse 9 rings absolutely true. We cannot sin because we are born of God. Now, what does this mean for those moments when we do sin? Well, when we are sinning, we are not living in a manner that's consistent with the new nature we've been given. Instead, we are acting according to our old nature, our, um, our sin nature instead of this new nature. And it's for this reason. It's for this reason that we will continue to struggle with sin until Christ comes again or brings us home to heaven to be with him. However, Christians can be comforted even when we get caught up in our remaining sin nature at, at times in our lives because we know that this sin does not remove the love of God from us, nor does it remove our salvation from us. You might be temporarily ensnared by your sin. It might even last a little while. But because of the forgiveness that God gives you in Christ, you will not lose your place. You won't be rejected from God's family. Hebrews 12, 1 to 13 is incredibly helpful and encouraging for those of us who are keenly aware of our sins and might feel trapped because of how sinful we are. We don't have time to unpack that passage at length. That's worthy of a sermon in and of itself. But here are some highlights for us to be encouraged by and to be challenged by. The author of Hebrews, he acknowledges that we can be entangled by sin. We can get tripped up by sin. We can get get tied up by sin. But because, because we have the great example of Jesus and the encouragement of every saint who has gone before us, we can fix our eyes on Christ, no, uh, and no longer grow weary and lose heart in our, in, our, in our lives, even if we do struggle with sin. Right? If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we have a goal. We have a destination in mind. We know that all hope is not lost. We can get there. We can get to Christ. And we have all the saints cheering us on. Also, we see that if God rightly disciplines us for sin, there's no reason for us to lose heart. God lovingly disciplines us for our sins as our heavenly Father to teach us righteousness and so that we might share in his holiness. Through discipline, God confirms that we are his children. Yes, discipline is no fun. Discipline is no fun. But when we learn from our discipline, when we are trained further in righteousness, it will yield more righteousness. It will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. That's why it's so important for us to take ownership of our sin. That's why it's so important for us to use right language when it comes to describing our sin. We can't excuse it. We can't explain it away. Sin is sin. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to me too. Okay, sin is sin. We can't explain it away. We have to take ownership ownership of it. We need to own up to it. And when we take responsibility for our sin and when we know that we have to rightly face the consequences for our sin, that's how we grow, right? Because if you take ownership of your sin, if you 
welcome the consequences of your sin, even though you know you're forgiven, doesn't that teach you to appreciate salvation even more? Doesn't the consequences of sin make you want righteousness even more? It should. It should. God doesn't discipline us. He doesn't discipline us because he's a harsh father who disciplines out of anger. He doesn't discipline us because he's trying to get us to stop making his life more difficult. He disciplines us out of love to show us the better way, to help us realize that we can't hide in our sin any longer. Instead, we're to turn away from it. We're to deal with it in our lives. Brothers and sisters, when God disciplines you, he doesn't discipline you because he hates you. He doesn't discipline you because he's done with you. Or that he just wants you to just get it right. He disciplines you because he loves you. He proves that you're his son. He proves that you're his daughter by disciplining you. He calls sinners to salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, not because of anything that they've done to merit salvation, but in spite of what they've done. He keeps us and he holds us close. In spite of what we continue to do as well. We've seen that in the history of Israel. Right? It's easy for us to make fun of Israel, isn't it? Oh, stupid Israel. Why are you sinning again? Silly, silly Israel. What's wrong with you? Haven't you seen how God delivered you? Right? It's easy for us when we read the Old Testament to look at Israel and be like, what's wrong with you guys? Right? But for us, right, we're in that same boat. Right? Instead of saying, oh, stupid Israel, you should be saying, oh, stupid Roger. Oh, stupid Roger. Why do you persist in your sin? Why do you love it so yet, and yet, because of God's great love for us, because of the finished work of Christ, we are not rejected. We are not without hope. We are held close. We are held near. And the very same God who began the good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Hallelujah. What a wonderful Savior we have. Those of us who are born of God, those of us who are born of God, we must take sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. But we don't need to be discouraged. We don't need to be discouraged when we struggle. Because he still loves us. He still draws us near to himself. He is patient with us. And he will continue to grow us in righteousness. He promises that. You can take that to the bank. He will not abandon you no matter what you do. Going back to 1 John 3. That we might act according to to our old nature at times. John wants his readers to, to seriously consider their relationship to sin because their relationship to sin is telling of their spiritual condition. Verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The distinctions between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil could not be clearer. Those who have truly believed in God and repented of their sins will ultimately look different from those who are still lost in their sins and are still considered children of the devil. Now, that first difference that John describes is one that we've covered at length already this evening. A person may be a child of the devil in their failure to practice righteousness. 
This alone does not prove that someone is a child of the devil, but a lack of righteousness in the life of those who say that they believe in Jesus at the very least demonstrates that we are acting as if we are children of the devil in our choice to love sin more than righteousness. However, the lack of any kind of repentance and desire to repent from sin would definitely cause us to doubt whether someone is truly a child of God, even if they say they are a child of God, even if they serve faithfully at church, if they continue to choose not to act in righteousness. There is a, re- there is a good reason for us to doubt whether such a person is truly a child of God. The second difference between a child of God and a child of the devil is revealed through a lack of love for fellow believers. It's clear from John's identification of the person his reader is to love as a brother that he is speaking to believers. So he's, he wants us to consider whether we love our brothers or whether we love our sisters. He's going to elaborate on this further in future verses, but what he's doing here is he's drawing our attention to the fact that those who are truly children of God will sh- demonstrate a love for fellow believers. Now, loving fellow believers is not a new topic that John is bringing up in his letter. He ties, but, but tying righteousness with loving fellow believers reveals that a lack of love for fellow believers is equivalent to an act of unrighteousness. Now, why, why does John equate a lack of love for others, uh, for other believers, to deeds of unrighteousness that may characterize a child of the devil? Well, we're going to see this in a few weeks, but the end of chapter 3 holds the key. We demonstrate our unity in Christ and our love for him by believing in him and loving one another just as he commanded us to do. Just as he commanded us to do. So if we fail to love Christ's body, we are failing to obey Christ and thus are participants in unrighteousness, participants in lawlessness, participants in sin. If we are truly members of God's family, sinning will not be a characteristic that we will be known for in our lives. We will prove that we are part of the family of God through our righteous actions, knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ died to free us from our sins and defeat the works of the devil. We don't want to be righteous just because we don't want to feel guilty anymore. We want to be righteous because we are no longer children of the devil, but we are children of God. God takes sin very seriously. And we can see that in how he describes sin in the scriptures. How, can, how we understand sin in our lives is therefore incredibly important. If we know how God describes our sin in the scriptures, if we know how he views it, then we have no right to use different words to minimize the sins that we commit in our lives. Whether they're intentional acts of sin or accidental acts of sin, we must recognize sin as sin. We must call sin for what it is. We must call it sin. Don't call it an addiction. It's enslavement. Don't call it, um, don't, don't call it frustration. It's anger. We must recognize sin as sin. As we saw, our situation is not hopeless or depressing. There is grace. God understands that though we have been given a new nature from him, that we will at times, still struggle with our old nature as it's fading away and as our new nature is growing more and more in his likeness. We will still struggle, right? That old nature, it's still there. It's fading away, but it's still there. However, he still calls for us to take an active part in dealing with our sins. We see how seriously he wants us to consider our sin through the two reasons why we are to take our sins seriously, right? That sin is an act of rebellion against him. Not only is sin lawlessness, but it does not belong in the family of God. And though we will not be perfect in our practice of righteousness, we can, we can grow in righteousness by God's grace. Because of the hope that we have in him, 
because we know that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit intercede for us, pray for us to grow in our dependence upon God. This journey to be more like Christ, though hard, is not impossible. It's not impossible. It's not pointless. You shouldn't just wait for Christ to come back because it's just easier that way. We should strive for righteousness. So we should be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Our Lord is with us, and he will be the one who will complete the good work that he began in us. And that sin nature, that sin has ultimately been defeated already. And it will be finally put to an end at Christ's appearing. The end is in sight. Hope is there. Sin will not have final victory over us. So let's put it to death as best as we can in our lives so that the world can see that Jesus Christ truly can save his people from their sins. We end with the words of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful to you for how clear your word is when it comes to the issue of sin. We are grateful that John doesn't give us any wiggle room when it comes to understanding sin. He makes it very clear that sin doesn't belong in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that we would take heed and live accordingly to what your servant has revealed in your word. Help us to flee sin. Help us to view it properly. Help us to be committed to putting it to death in our lives because it no longer has a part in us. We pray, Father, that you would even encourage those of us who are struggling with our sins. Help us to realize that it's not hopeless, that we're not alone. That when you say that no temptation has overtaken us except that which is common to man, that means that the sin that we're facing, the temptation that we're experiencing is not something that we alone bear. It's not something that no one else is dealing with. But it is something that is indeed common to man. Help us to remember the fact that you are faithful, that with the temptation, you will provide a way of escape. Help us to remember these truths and to fight with all we got through the power of the Holy Spirit to flee unrighteousness and to put on the new self which, is, which has been in your likeness created and given to us. Help us, Lord, we pray, to glorify you in everything. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.